0: Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID 19 and other health related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. Perfect. So, first of all, everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, this week, we got to see uh, America flex its ability to lead as a democracy with voting and so forth. So we have we have one public con- uh, concern and advocacy, which we do so every year with voting and so forth. So congratulations to everyone who was able to vote and, and did vote. But now let's turn our attention back to the public health concern, the global concern that's been going on for quite some time. Uh, well, since at least March 11th, when the World Health Organization declared it pandemic. So today we're going to talk about COVID-19. I do want to emphasize uh, before we go into the numbers and then we start tackling the questions uh, from the community that uh, one Tuesday is our Medicine for the Greater Good Symposium. We will be celebrating 30 years of the Americans with Disability Act. Our keynote speaker is a Paralympian, uh, Jessica Long, who has probably, I believe, more gold medals than Michael Phelps. Then uh, that's from 12 to 1. We'll have a brief break between 1 to 1.30 that we'll have some uh, of our partners on, and you can listen to them talk about some of the great things they are doing for the community of individuals with disabilities. And then from 1.30 to about 3 o'clock, we have an amazing panel. Our moderator is a geriatrician, Dr. Colin Christmas. Panelists include a physician educator who discusses how to care for persons with disabilities, that's Dr. Tracy Freelander. all the way to a School of Medicine student who is becoming a physician, Harry Paul, and lives with chronic disabilities. And he'll discuss why persons with disabilities should try to get into more health care just because of that empathy that they can bring along. In addition to Trayvon, he is a Paralympian himself. He is a wheelchair-bound basketball player who will talk about his most recent gold medal that he had a few years back. So should be great overall to hear from a community that uh, with cutting edge research as well as advocacy is needed to make sure that all the American population get the health equity that they deserve. So hopefully you guys can join us. I know it's a bit of time out of your Tuesday, but hopefully you'll find it relaxing and rewarding and knowing what you can do for that community as well. So back to COVID-19. Let's discuss where we're at with the numbers. And then I know Kimberly's excited to start asking some questions that have been coming in from the community. and these conversations, by the way, we're about to have are important. All around the world, you have seen spikes go up. And it's not incredibly shocking, you know, to some extent, as the numbers went down, we phased in. And again, it's kind of this trial and error, like, are we phasing in? Well, are people being compliant with physical distancing and face masking? And if the numbers go back up with hospitals overloaded, then we take a step back that this is what's going to be happening in this uh, era of the pandemic. And I will say countries like Greece, which just mandated a lockdown for November, to states like Maryland, where Governor Hogan is likely to announce some other uh, restrictions and conversations today, if not Monday, we are all feeling the burden of COVID-19. So let's discuss the numbers at this moment. Globally, there are 49,261,522 cases with deaths of 1,242,865 given us a mortality rate of 2.5 percent. Here in the United States, we have 9,993,271 cases with deaths of 241,126, giving us a mortality rate of 2.4 percent. And here in the state of Maryland, 151,505 cases with deaths at 4,046, giving us a mortality rate of 2.7 percent. And these numbers we give you every week, we need a grasp that a lot of the trajectories have spiked this week with cases. And now without further ado, one of the benefits of these calls is listening to the community. And Kimberly, I know we have a lot of questions that have come in. So let's use our time today to tackle these questions. Kimberly, over to you, my friend.
1: Great. Thank you, Dr. G. So where shall we start? Um, First question, can you always tell if someone has COVID-19?
0: So, let me, I'm going to walk you through this answer. So, can you tell if someone is ill? Yes, right. Getting a lung disease is going to result in coughing, and sneezing, and shortness of breath, and in fever. So, you can tell if someone is ill. Can you tell if that illness is COVID-19? Sadly, no. And the reason for that is the non, these symptoms are specific SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, can make you short of breath, cough, and can make you have fevers. So can other viruses that get into the lungs? So in this time though, knowing that SARS-CoV-2 is the virus of the pandemic, every healthcare professional, from your doctors, to your nurse practitioners, if we hear patients with fevers, coughs, shortness of breath, yeah, the first thing we're going to try to test for is SARS-CoV-2, our, our, our heightened awareness is towards that. However, please keep in mind these symptoms are not specific to COVID-19. Even those other uh, symptoms that sound rather unique, such as loss of smell and taste, can not exclusive to COVID-19. Other viruses can cause this. So I will say this, when a patient tells me their symptoms, I, I tell them off the uh, right off the bat, I, I can't diagnose COVID-19. Those symptoms are in alignment with the disease, but nothing of these symptoms is exclusive to COVID-19. And therefore at that moment, we discuss testing to confirm if they have it or not. So great question Kimberly. And this is an important one, especially uh, ladies and gentlemen, as we've transitioned also into flu season, where we get a lot of those questions. Is it the flu or COVID-19? Honestly, without testing, we just don't know. Back to you, Kimberly.
1: Thank you, Dr. G. So the next question, can vitamins and mineral supplements cure COVID-19?
0: So we get this question a lot and let me put it this way. Uh, Vitamins and minerals can help 100% enhance your immune system to better fight off COVID-19, 100%. Our bodies run on very specific energy resources and vitamins and minerals help to amplify that. Now, so I'm gonna answer the answer is yes. However, I wanna be cautious with supplements. Mother Nature and her delivery of vitamins and minerals through natural ways, right, from spinach to arugula, to fruits and vegetables, right, to other proteins and, and dairy sources, vitamins and minerals coming in through natural foods will always be more effective than any supplement. And we have studied that countless times. We know vitamin C from fruits and vegetables, much more effective than vitamin C in a supplement. The reason for that is that when we give you vitamin C in a supplement, you're literally just getting vitamin C. Vitamin C coming from fruits and vegetables, that vitamin C is also interacting with a variety of other uh, proteins, a variety of other sugars, a variety of other just natural products that help to enhance and amplify vitamin C, something that we cannot replicate, even the best scientists and so forth, in a laboratory. So the way I answer this is, yes, vitamins and minerals 100% are effective in the battle against COVID-19, but if you're going to get them, please, please, please get them through, natural, uh, through the natural process of just foods, right? Those that are non-processed and the ones that would make your mother or grandmother or parents smile by eating. Now, the other flip to this, though, is if you have been diagnosed with a deficiency in a vitamin, such as vitamin D, this comes up often, if you've been diagnosed with a severe deficiency, then yes, taking a supplement there is appropriate because it, the supplement will give you an extra boost where bringing it in naturally won't get you to that level in a uh, in a brief amount of time. So if you've been declared and identified to have a deficiency in any of these vitamins, uh, Vitamins or minerals? Yes. Supplements are reasonable then. But if you're not deficient, then get these vitamins and minerals into a natural way, because I promise you it is much more effective than any man-made supplement. So back to you, Kimberly.
1: Thank you, Dr. G. So the next question, can cold weather and snow kill the virus?
0: Uh, We always talk about the weather, right? Uh, uh, Kimberly, correct me if I'm wrong, back in April we talked about can hot weather kill the virus, right? Exactly. Did we get that question?
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. So let me put, let, let's say this, weather in of itself it can be somewhat effective in helping stop the spread of viruses. It can, yes, both heat and cold, both of those extremes. The caveat to that though is humans don't live outside, we live indoors. So any of the heat conversation is offset with the air conditioning that we go back inside, and any cold is offset with the warm temperatures we come inside to our home. So I see this because flu season tends to ravage us during the cold time. Right? Now, a lot of it has to do with the clustering of humans inside, indoors, where influenza loves to be, loves to spread. thing will likely happen with coronavirus. It will take advantage of us coming into close proximity with one another, or we can't really stay outside because of the cold weather, and we'll likely come indoors. And I say this also because the weather conversation is reasonable to discuss, but weather will always be offset if humans are in close proximity to one another, without face masks or without physical distancing, and being around each other for more than 10 minutes. Let me give you an example. Over the summer, you know, when we talked with uh, you and I, Kimberly, we talked about the heat. Heat, yes, has been identified that it can kill the virus, but you had massive outbreaks, super spreading events in beaches of Texas and Florida. And the reason behind that is people without face masks, without physically distancing, were in close proximity with one another for more than 10 minutes. That was an ample amount of time to pick up the virus from one individual to another. So whether it's a good conversation to have, but it can't undo you know, human social behaviors, especially those behaviors mean coming together in a a room temperature environment, such as indoors, no face masks, no physical distancing, and being in close proximity for more than 10 minutes. Again, we've seen all, we saw that, we see this already in super spreading events, in restaurants, and so forth. So, back to the original question, can cold weather? Cold weather can play a role, but the reason we see these outbreaks of prior to the uh, Coronavirus with the flu and so forth. It's just because people go inside where it's very optimal for these kind of viruses to spread. And so we need to be on our guard whether weather not going to help end this pandemic, this pandemic will end through us. So back to you, Kimberly.
1: So this is a, a perfect segue to the next discussion. You know, you'd mentioned influenza, and there's always a lot of questions about what to look for and the, the differences and similarities, particularly with these seasonal illnesses, when you've got the flu, you've got a cold, you've got allergies, um, you've got sinus infections, get pneumonia, strep throat. Um, so, and what symptoms are doctors directly looking at for the coronavirus, and how do you know, you know, when to start looking at that versus you have the flu or something
0: else? Sorry for the dramatic pause. Kimberly was looking for that mute button. Uh, a rookie mistake. Sorry about that, my friend. So, I will tell you this. Again, it goes back to the earlier conversation. These symptoms are rather nonspecific. But for all the listeners out there, I'll tell you, uh, one of the symptoms, the uh, two symptoms that really get my attention that again, doesn't mean you have covid nineteen. it could be it could be influenza, it could be a variety of other viruses that go into the lungs. Um, but there's two fevers and shortness of breath. Now, shortness of breath will always concern me. And when a patient calls me now, I get it, I'm a lung doctor, so I promise you there's a I, I, there's a variety of other, diseases, other pre-existing conditions, they're going to call shortness of breath. So I'm always trying to tease that out when I work with my patients. Could this be your heart? Could this be asthma and not COVID-19? So I would say there isn't a sure way of answering that. It really takes time with a healthcare professional and the patient to kind of tease that through. But if you don't have any pre-existing conditions that should render you short of breath, if you get shortness of breath, 100% 100% talk immediately with your healthcare professional. It's a, it's a symptom that always raises my concern for COVID-19 or just something uh, more sinister or as sinister. Another one is fever. Fever of COVID-19, while it's, you know, sometimes cracks the top three symptoms, other times it's usually in the top five, but COVID-19 fevers, I have yet to meet a patient who tells me it wasn't that bad. Every patient I've heard of who describes COVID-19 fevers describes it as the worst feeling they've ever had, where they're curled up in a bed, hugging their pillows. COVID-19 fevers, I promise you, aren't going, are not gonna be detected with a thermometer as you go out in public, unless you're walking out in public with the fever. But these fevers will render you kind of, uh, like a weight on your feet it kind of pulls you down. It pulls you down. So if you have fevers or shortness of breath, those are two things I would 100% Raise the concern to your doctor. Because these two symptoms, again, while they're not specific, you've got my attention where I'm suddenly now gonna screen for COVID nineteen. If you've received your flu shot and so if you got your flu shot, it's one way to yes, try to not get the flu. But these kind of vaccines are specifically for the flu. Let me let me walk back a little bit. Flu influenza the cause of the flu is a type of virus, a type of microbe known as zoonotic. It might sound like an exotic word. All it really means is a virus that begins in an animals, mutates, comes into humans. The reason why I say that is a vaccine for a zoonotic virus is not sometimes doesn't stop the spread of the virus. It usually can help stop the spread. But it also can help minimize the symptoms you get from that infection. Now, this is unlike something like smallpox, right? Smallpox has been eradicated because they didn't have an animal reservoir to just go and hide in. Flu does, influenza does. It can always go back to birds and so forth, hang out there and then reemerge a year later. So if you get the flu, right, and you're cursing Dr. G, you're like, oh, Dr. G, you said I wasn't gonna get the flu if I had the flu shot. No, no, the flu shot will either help stop the spread. So yeah, you may not get it, but if you do get it, your symptoms will be minimal. And I say this because you can still get a fever with the flu if you've had the flu shot, but it's not groundbreaking, right? It is manageable. You're like, I feel a little achy, but I'm still going to do my chores. Versus COVID-19 fevers where I'm not getting out of bed. So the severity of the fevers is always important to weigh in. And so what I would tell our listeners is as you're trying to just, you know, which symptoms should I tell my doctor? What could this be? Could this be flu? grab the phone, talk to your healthcare professionals. And again, I told you about these symptoms are non-specific, but there is a bit of severity that gets my attention more for COVID-19. And that's how bad that fever is and how it's making you feel and how bad is your shortness of breath. So Kimberly, you're asking a great question. So many other uh, viruses, so many other diseases from seasonal allergies and so forth can cause these symptoms. The two I raised are the ones that you should let your health care professionals know. Other things like a runny nose, uh, so many things can cause it. And COVID, it's not, it can happen in COVID-19, but it's not one of the leading symptoms. So, you know, I'll, I'll tease that out with my patients. A dry cough happens a lot. It's almost, it's almost a, a universally seen in every COVID-19 patient. And that makes sense, right? The virus wants to cause a cough because it's a good way to get out of the lungs and spread into the environment and hopefully to be picked up by the next patient. So a dry cough happens for so many reasons. But if you're a person who doesn't live with a dry cough day-to-day and you suddenly develop it, I will just go ahead and raise that awareness to your doctor. He or she will work through that. It might not be anything to to really do at the moment, and they'll try to find another uh, explanation, and they'll ask you if you've come into contact with people with COVID-19, or have you done anything recently that raises your risk of getting it? But a dry cough, so many things can cause it. And a time like this with a pandemic, I would still probably raise a red flag to your doctor if you develop it and you're someone who never really has a cough. Kimberly, was that good? Sorry I went in a very long-winded way and got around vaccines a little bit, even dropped the vocabulary word zoonotic, but hopefully that answers without causing too much more confusion.
1: So it was great, but I was wondering if you could clarify two things. So one. Go for it. As far as the fever, when you say it's a fever like no other, are we talking about a certain temperature, say, over 100, or is it just all about the way you feel, like it's making you feel?
0: Oh, that's a great question. So it's going to be a combination of the two, but it's probably more of the latter, how it makes you feel. And I say this because if you check your temperature and it's 99.4, but you're curled up in bed on a pillow, let your doctor know, maybe it's more of a thermometer. But the reason because this the fever is so bad for people has a lot to do with the proteins of inflammation that is released by COVID-19. So what we've been finding, so let me, let me put it this way. Patients get sick for a variety of infections. And honestly, there's pretty much kind of a general immune response that we see. So if you had a bad pneumonia or if you had a bad bronchitis that's causing fevers. If I drew your blood and I looked at the immune system cells, I probably can't tell the difference of who had the pneumonia, who had the bronchitis. On COVID-19, we can. We're beginning to find that the amount of inflammation released by this virus in your body is unlike anything we've seen before. While it's the same proteins of inflammation, they are just at such a severe level. Like one colleague, when he was reviewing this, he's like, it almost looks like cancer if I had to say it, you know, just because of the, those kind of proteins. So that's where I go back to the thermometer may not pick up the specific number of how bad you're feeling, but I promise you these massive inflammatory proteins that are pushed out, that's what usually renders people feeling miserable. So Kimberly's asking a you know, great question. Dr. G, is it the number or is it the symptoms? For me, it's more of the symptoms of how it's making you feel, but there is a there's a very good correlation. It's hard to find patients with like a 98.6 a feeling like they have a fever. Usually it goes hand in hand, but sometimes it doesn't. So I definitely would be more attentive toward the symptoms, like, oh, I feel so bad. Objectively, it also depends on your um, thermometer and where you're checking it. You know, forehead is good. It's not the uh, most accurate, but it's it's reasonable. It gives us an approximation if you have a fever or not. So pay attention to both, 100% really but it's definitely more of the symptoms. Like if you had a, if you registered 104.3 temperature and you're like, I feel great, that's probably just more of a elevated body temperature, right, if you went out for a good jog, or run, maybe you could, you could elevate your body temperature to that, it's not necessarily a fever. So it's more of the symptoms, the symptoms in this, uh, from inflammation, that's what renders people just devastated.
1: Great, thank you for clarifying. And the other piece, as far as shortness of breath, I mean, we all can sometimes have shortness of breath if we're walking fast, going up a bunch of steps, it's cold outside. Are So are we just talking about, oh, it's a little bit trying to, you know, catch my breath, or is it a, I can't, I can't, I literally feel like I can't breathe. I'm getting no oxygen.
0: Yeah, so it, it's more of the latter. Shortness of breath, from that standpoint, it's more of the latter, right? It's, it's especially in adults, it's like, I just can't catch my breath. I feel like I'm not getting oxygen, right? That's our biggest concern that we have there. So from my standpoint, shortness, you're, you're right. We all get short of breath. I was short of breath earlier this morning on my Peloton, right? So that we're looking for one that doesn't go away with rest. It's one that's still active with rest. That, that would be my concern. Great.
1: Thank you for clarifying. So we do have a lot of um, questions more about some news that the governor said, but one last question um, about do you need a doctor's referral to get a COVID test?
2: So
0: great question. And I'm going to give you a little bit of an answer without being incredibly, um, without giving, I'm going to give it a little bit of an answer. Let me put it aside. Can you get tested through a doctor? 100%. Doctor can put in an order, boom, there you go. Can you get tested without a doctor's note? The answer is yes, but it really takes community effort. So here in Baltimore City, we've had a lot of great community engagements in both the east side and west side, where our faith-based organization partners, we pulled them in and we're like, hey, let's get some free testing out here for your community. So people from the community were coming up and being tested for free No doctor note was needed. So do you need a doctor's note to get tested? The answer is no, but you need to find that kind of community organization that is organized pre-testing. Otherwise, yes, getting a doctor putting a note 100% gets you into a healthcare office where you'll get tested and be sent off to a lab. So the answer is a little, I hate to say it this way, but uh, well, I apologize, but the most efficient way definitely is get, having a doctor put in an order, just because it goes into a great organized system and they'll call you and they'll bring you in and get tested. Community testing is fantastic because it helps reach populations that otherwise can't be reached by the healthcare world. The challenge there is you're, you're kind of waiting on them to organize it, when it will be, and so forth. And it can happen. And We've seen great community organizations rally together, creating efficiency of access to the testing. But it's just—it's a lot of reliance on a system that needs to make sure it has the means to do so. So the answer is yes, right? It just—you have to be cognizant of the communities that are doing the testing where you can go and get it done. Back to you, Kimberly.
1: Thank you, Doctor G. So, um, so moving on about um, the numbers and, and how they're growing in the state and across the country. So the first question. Relates to um, state travel during upcoming Thanksgiving. Um, Governor Hogan commented on yesterday during his news conference. But want to be clear: was it a, one, was it a suggestion or is it a state mandate? And two, when arriving in state, traveling to and returning back to Maryland, do you need to quarantine? So it's a two-part question there. So basically, if you could discuss travel, safe traveling around Thanksgiving.
0: Right. So I, I'm going to imagine it. it so this, this has been one of the, the challenges with um, our kind of national response to COVID-19. It is is a little bit of a heterogeneity in regards to state by state, right? So like, for instance, Maine, I feel like was the only state that had to test my patients before they could go and travel back to Maine. Other states didn't require it. So I say this because that kind of heterogeneity from one state to another means to our listeners you've got to tune into what that state is doing, right? Because you just discussed our own governor here in Maryland, but Pennsylvania may be different and West Virginia might be different. This is just very unique times where going from one state to another, where we, no one thought anything of it, it was a great liberty to have, but now with the pandemic, travel overall may be a little bit more challenging. So what Governor Hogan said yesterday, and I apologize, I, I too don't know if he meant it as a strong recommendation or is he shifting it into more of a uh, legislation where this will be mandated? I don't know. I will continue up, uh, reviewing that update. And Kimberly, you and I can make sure that our listeners get access to that uh, information. So so I apologize. As far, the way I interpreted it was I thought these were strong suggestions to help mitigate the spread of COVID-19 here. But on a different look, I'm like, oh, I'm wondering if he is going to move forward with some level of legislation to help. So more to come i don't have an immediate answer right off the bat but for our callers when no thanksgiving is coming up we get it um you know it, it's a big holiday in my family and as many other americans and so forth so this is what i would strongly encourage if you're going to travel travel safely right uh, I, I always like to make this point the airplane modality of traveling has yet to be identified as a super spreading event itself planes If you have a middle seat open, can physically distance, and the majority of people wearing face masks the majority of time have yet to be identified as a super spreading event. May also have really good ventilation in them. If you're going to get infected from traveling through a plane, it's going to happen in the airport, especially around baggage claimage, right? So we, we saw that with one of these cases of a flight going from London to Vietnam, where Four people got infected that sat around someone, actively coughing, no face mask. They weren't wearing one either. There's no physical distancing. This was early in the course of the pandemic. The fifth person who got infected got it from baggage clean. So uh, interacting with that individual. So that will be a strong caution there. Car traveling, probably a little bit more safe. It just depends on the public places you stop to rest at. Interacting with family, Right. And the thing is, like, what I really want to emphasize, if you want to interact with family during these holidays, it is going to take starting now planning for it. Call them up. Mom, dad, grandparents, what are you doing to assure that you're not catching COVID-19? Hear about their public efforts and so forth, because the best way to not spread COVID-19 at Thanksgiving is to not bring COVID-19 into Thanksgiving. So talk to them now, make sure that they are doing the proper thing to not have the virus and so forth. So the travel overall, you know, if you come back into Maryland, you have to quarantine. Kimberly, I will have to look into that. I apologize. I don't know off the top of my head. I know we had those restrictions early in the course of the pandemic, where we looked into it often. Um, You know, many of my patients who came from states that uh, our governor said, hey, if you're coming from South Carolina, got to quarantine for two weeks, and I know this because I had a quarantine for two weeks when I went and visited my sister and came back. So more to come. We'll, uh, Kimberly and I are on it. we we'll are look to see if these were strong suggestions or actual legislation. But I apologize, Kimberly. I don't have the immediate answer off the top of my head. I, I will say when I heard him speak yesterday, I felt like these were strong suggestions, but I, I didn't pick up on these were going to be requirements. Sorry about that.
1: So I'm actually, so I'm on the Maryland governor website right now, and just um, to mention two things, um, of course the Maryland statewide masking order remains in full effect, but as far as the out-of-state travel advisory, um, it it says a travel advisory, Um, doesn't say a mandate, um, but it's issued by state health officials, has been renewed, remains in effect. Um, They're strongly advised against traveling to states with positivity rates of 10 percent or higher, and anyone traveling from these states should get tested and self-quarantine while awaiting results, and avoid non-essential travel of any kind outside of the region. So um, that's what's posted there. Um,
0: Thank you, Kimberly. Sorry, I was trying to hit the mute button. Listeners, this is why Kimberly and I are a team. Like, Kimberly, like, I'll come with you guys with the medical information. Kimberly is amazing in keeping up to date with everything else from a public health standpoint. So, you know, the Kimberly and Dr. G tag team is always going to make sure that you listeners get the most updated information in real time. Thank you, Kimberly.
1: Yeah, we were, we're thinking about renaming this to the Dr. G and Kimmy Monson show.
0: So, we'll see. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I, hopefully our listeners will like that. Back um, to you. What's our next question?
1: So, uh, again, I just wanted to thank um, everyone for submitting um, their fantastic questions. I just have a couple more. Um, The next one is, um, there's been some news on an upward trend in cases among children. Um, Have you heard that as well, and why do you think this is happening?
0: Yes, no, I, I've heard it as well. So, um, and Kim and I have a, you know, we, we run this COVID-19 community call. We run the uh, congregational COVID-19 um, uh, efforts to help congregations assimilate back into this pandemic. And we also run our COVID-19 curriculum for uh, schools. And I can tell you, you know, again, we're all trying to adapt in real time, in real time. To this pandemic, so for schools who saw the numbers in the community low, and they phased in and then they had to take a step back. My suspicion for the children cases, right? Because there's there's only there's one big difference between the spring and now. Because in the spring, the majority of schools were all locked down, nothing was happening. Like right? children cases were incredibly low. Like that was we didn't hear about children getting this virus, right? It was it was. Uh, you know, if it did, it caught the media's attention because it was a very rare situation. But children, for almost uh, universally throughout the United States, were not back in school um, between uh, late March to June. So the cases were low. So big changes right now for a variety of schools. Some of them have gone back in, of course, with you know architectural changes for different things, face mask requirement, and so forth. Others uh, have done hybrids. To me, that's the biggest change overall between the spring and now, and my suspicion is that's where we're seeing the cases come from, is from the schools. Um, again, more has to be done in order to evaluate this and and look it through. But when you look between, you know, what was different between spring and early summer and now fall and early winter, that has to do with schools going back in. I will say, I I. I and by I don't blame any school for attempting to phase in, especially when community cases were so low. That's appropriate. I think it's reasonable to consider, let's move in, let's transition in. the hospitals are doing well, cases are low, it's reasonable to move in. But as cases back spike, I think it's always recognized, hey, we should just take a step back and maybe phase out, maybe lower the numbers of students into these rooms and so forth. But keep in mind, for all those cases of children getting it, while children, adults one in six will get severe symptoms, Children's about one in 20. So it's not, you know, keep in mind, there will be children who will suffer from COVID-19 and we need to be cognizant of that in addition to teachers and so forth. So my suspicion, Kimberly, probably has a lot to do with schools and some other engagement. Again, it's not wrong. We're trying to adapt in real time, but as we realize these adaptations are happening in a moment with cases spiking, let's take a step back. And I imagine that's what we're gonna hear from a variety of leadership, um, throughout the country i i will say and the only reason i bring up greece is just because it, yeah, i'm greek american but i just heard about that yesterday where they're locking down i mean greece was one of the countries who had great um pandemic handling in a sense of no cases over the summer they eventually let their borders open for tourist purposes They actually all went back to school or, or with their own restrictions but now cases are really escalating and so they're taking a step back i will say though other countries and granted this is easier from a border control standpoint taiwan and australia i mean they have effectively ended their own epidemic right keep in mind epidemic just means regionally high cases taiwan what has gone now 200 plus days without a case australia has done if they're not the same better and i want to make these points of emphasis right because this pandemic i know we're waiting for a vaccine or maybe a cure, probably the vaccine will get there first. But keep in mind, two other bad coronaviruses came into the world, 2003, 2013, and we eradicated them. No vaccine, no cure. We just stopped spreading it, right? We took these measures in certain parts of the world. And actually, even Taiwan did it without a government mandate, just because the population has gone through that before with SARS-CoV in 2003. So when this came back on, they're like, you know what? We're going to physically distance. We'll stay at home as much as possible, and we'll face mask. And the population was rather compliant. It went many days. And I'm only bringing this up just to say, this really is in our control. We can put an end to this, and this is where Kimberly and I always love you all joining these calls. Because the more we're hoping this science motivates you, this insight into public health motivates you, you all taking this information for yourselves, for your family, for your neighbors and for your community. You guys can help put not just put an end to this pandemic, but save countless lives. So yes, Kimberly, I took your uh, answer and I ran with it a little bit more. I apologize, my friend, um, but I just always want to make sure our listeners know, you guys have this power. You have this power. And I don't doubt you're not using it. You are, but continue helping us have an uh, ongoing reach. So back to you, Kimberly.
1: That was great. Thank you, Dr. G. So those are all the questions. Um, Before I wrap up, is there any uh, closing comments that you would like to share with our listeners?
0: Yeah. So the pandemic is here. here. We're fighting it. Continue joining our calls. At the same time, other non-COVID-19 things are happening, so keep that in mind. So Monday, you heard Kimberly. It's our lesson at 5 o'clock. Please join. We love those. We love making sure people are still aware of other uh, non-COVID medical issues. And then Tuesday, please join, you know, it's all free from 12 to three, you're gonna hear from amazing speakers talking about persons with disabilities. I'm hoping you leave that session motivated to continue helping our, our you know, our neighbors and friends and so forth. Um, so join these, uh, get get your mind a little bit off the pandemic, um, but keep in mind, uh, we're happy to give you guys these, uh, these uh, great outlets um, to talk about health in different ways in order to Take your mind a little bit off the pandemic, but then keep fighting the good fight to end this pandemic. That's it, Kimberly. Those are my last closing words. Off to you, my friend, um, to bring us uh, into the weekend. Go for it.
1: Thank you, Dr. G. And before I turn this over to Reverend Johnson, I want to remind everyone again that there will be no call next Friday, November the 13th. Please join us again on Friday, November the 20th at 11 a.m. Joining Dr. G will be Dr. Jonathan Zettelman, Professor of Medicine in the Infectious Disease Division at Johns Hopkins Bayview, and he'll discuss the latest medical news on the pandemic. Now, for those who would like to stay on the call, Reverend Johnson will offer closing thoughts and a prayer.
2: Thank you very much, Kimberly, and good morning to you and to Dr. G, and thank you both for um, sharing such great information. And uh, once again, and good morning to everyone on the call. So, although we have or come through or actually coming uh, to the end of national and local elections, we knew going in that regardless of the outcomes, great challenges would still lie before us, especially during an unrelenting global pandemic. That's, after all, the way of life. Changes and challenges are ever before us. What matters most is how we respond to those challenges and changes. Do we cower? Do we confront? Do we become complacent? Do we compromise? Or do we engage, embrace, and seek to provide for the common good despite the constant changes and challenges of life? Many of our faiths teach that God, the Holy One, the Divine Light, is the one constant in a world of constant change and challenges. And so we turn to the Constant One in prayer. Holy God. We come as a collective recognizing that all those seasons days months and years change situations and circumstances change people come into and exit from our lives even we ourselves change sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse but you never change you remain constantly compassionate loving caring forgiving long-suffering patient and kind, you allow us to face challenges and confront or embrace change so that we might grow stronger in our ability to love, to show compassion, to care, to forgive, to show patience, and to be kind. Though we know not what tomorrow holds, but we do know that your constant and changeless hand holds tomorrow. Therefore, let us face each day With faith over fear, strength for every struggle, and courage to take on new challenges and commitments. Help us to unite as people of faith, and even as a nation, to always fight for the common good of all, so that we might truly become in you one people with liberty, peace, and justice for all. In your name we pray, amen.
1: Thank you, Reverend Johnson. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Have a great weekend, and uh, we'll start again on the 20th. Thanks so much. Take care, everyone.
0: This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.